Good morning. Good morning. Man, it's a good number. It's always a good day when we have to bring out the extra seats. Uh, I'm thankful that y'all y'all uh, decided to worship and, and open God's Word with us today. You could be sweating anywhere in this city today, but you are sweating with us, and that means um, I never know the best way to approach as I preach. It's a small church. We have a, a small setup, or a new church. We have a very, very... Uh, intimate setup, and there's no great way, I either have to come from the back, which feels like someone should be like, in some way, like, hey, high-fiving while I run back, <laughs> or I can enter from the curtains, and it, I feel like I need a fog machine for that, so I, uh, I'm thankful to be here, and I'm thankful to stand before you, and I pray that no matter how we get to where we're at, we find ourselves gracefully doing so, um, Today we're going to continue in the Lord's Prayer. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 13. We're going to read that in a second. If, uh, if you're big on uh, just knowing where we're going, we're also going to be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I would ask that you bookmark there. We're going to spend uh, a lot of time in the Lord's Prayer, but we're going to land in Ephesians 2, and we're going to see um, what Paul has written to the church of Ephesus and how it directly applies um, to our understanding of the Lord's Prayer. I hope that this summer has found you well. The summer has officially begun. I hope you know the song, The Party Don't Start Till I Walk In. That's the summer in accordance to the Houghton Pool Party. So yesterday, we had the fourth annual Houghton Pool Party. They always graciously open up their, uh, their home and their pool to our church. Uh, we always know how to show up. If there's, if there's anything this church can do well, it is kill tacos and eat topo, and, or drink, to, uh, drink topo, and we did that well. It was a good time just to get together and, and have fun uh, with some people from the neighborhood, some, um, some non-TCOC uh, people come, and that's really the point uh, of the summer for Trinity Church, for us to get together and just enjoy each other's company, to get together with nothing planned, no curriculum, just some food and, and some water, and, and hang out, check on each other, do life together, and that's, that's really the foundation of how we we planted this church. Yes, we planted this church to bring glory to God and to speak truth into the city and to see the lost come to know Christ. But the manner in which we have done that is that we enjoy spending time together. We do life together and that radiates. Um, I, I am under no illusion that I am a, a, a good enough speaker to just draw in the masses. And then we're not about a concert environment when we lead worship. But we are about uh, being shoulder to shoulder with, with the, the sons and the daughters of God and, and proclaiming truth, living life together, and just seeing how God can use us in the midst of Oak Cliff, in the midst of Dallas, Texas. So uh, the Lord's Prayer is where we find ourselves in this prayer series. Um, we have spent the last th uh, two weeks, we will spend this week, and we will spend next week, as Jamin closes out, uh, an emphasis on prayer and what that means to us and what that means in the life uh, of, of the children of God and how we commune with our God and how we speak with our God, how we learn from our God and how we get to know our God. And, and we specialize and we emphasize on prayer because of its importance. And it would, it would feel uh, incomplete if we focused on prayer without praying, and it would feel incomplete if we focused on prayer without seeing how Christ has taught us to prayer. Christ's red letter spoke um, how he wanted us to pray. He starts off the Lord's Prayer with pray then like this, and he means it, and we take that literally. So for this prayer series, we decided that we were just going to dissect the Lord's Prayer. We are going to hover and dwell in the Lord's Prayer and pull out some marrow. So the Lord's Prayer is an easily memorizable prayer. It may be the most memorized thing in the Bible outside of John 3.16. 
but there's some things I hope and some truths I hope that we were faced with in the last few weeks that don't confuse the memorableness of Scripture or how easy it is to memorize something with how easy it is to apply something. That we can memorize the Lord's Prayer, but understanding the Lord's Prayer is something entirely different. It is, it is, the wording itself is simple. There's no words inside the Lord's Prayer that you would have to Google to find the definition. It's understanding, as far as understanding the words inside the Lord's Prayer, in of itself, do not take a theologian to understand um, the words such as, Thy kingdom come, like we understand it's His kingdom and we want it to come, or, or His will be done, and we want the Lord's will not our Lord, and that He is our Father, and that He is holy, and that he, he gives us our daily bread, and He sustains us, and He can deliver us from evil. All of those things are good and beautiful things, and they're things that, that the human mind can understand, but the application of the Lord's Prayer is painfully hard. And I say that so you're not scared of the Lord's Prayer, but that you enter into the Lord's Prayer on understanding that it's going to take intentional work. For you to understand the Lord's Prayer, to read the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Prayer not just be some uh, liturgy that you say from time again, but it be a manner in which you live your life. Jamin did an amazing job of walking us through some of the hardest words in the Bible where it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done. That sounds beautiful. It sounds romantic. It sounds like a, a, a charge in which we want to live our life. But when we apply that to our life, it can be heartbreaking. The truth can be painful. A lot of y'all know my story, some of you may not, but I grew up uh, pretty rough. I grew up fast, and I grew up in a, in a hard time. I, I, was the, I am the survival, survivor of a lot of physical and sexual abuse for right under a decade of my life I spent in that. I spent my life, I, I was formed in that. Um, I, I am now called to be, literally be a detective of the same kind of crime, which proves we serve a sovereign God that knows best for us. Right, But there were a time in my life when I was praying, deliver me from this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I hated those words because nothing was changing. I, find myself, I found myself in the midst of God's will and it didn't change the fact that I was walking out with scars. And that is okay and there's beauty and there's sovereignness in that because I am able to be a different kind of detective. I'm able to look into the eyes of abused kids and say, I know where you've been, I know where you want to go, and I'm not saying that from a hypothetical standpoint from training. I'm saying I've been where you are and I'm going to lead you to where you need to go because I serve a sovereign God that made sure when I was praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He was saying, my kingdom is coming, my will is being done, but you're going to hurt for a little bit. But that hurt and that pain is sovereign. That hurt and that pain can be found with joy because it's for His will and His glory. And I see His glory every single day when I get to look into the eyes of kids and say, I know where you've been, just hold on. I'm not going to just hypothetically yell from the deep, dark hole you find yourself in and say, hey, come to me. I'm going to jump in the hole and I'm not going to say, hey, what do we do? I'm going to say, I've been in this hole before and I know how to get out. And I know how to get out because every day when I prayed, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, even though I hated it, I tattooed it on my arm as an understanding of saying, this is what has to mark you metaphorically, spiritually, and it marks me literally because it's what I cling to. Because every day I get up and people say, how do you do what you do? And my short-term answer for them is, I don't understand a life where I don't get to do this. 
I was made for this. I was designed for this. But that shaping, that molding, that came from fire and brimstone. That came from pain. That came from sin. That came from heartache. But all of it I find joy in because when I say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, I mean it even though the scars aren't going away this side of heaven. But we serve a sovereign God who says, I know where you're at. I know how you can pray. I know how you commune with me. I know how you can understand me. And the understanding of our God, the understanding of who we serve and who saved us is where we find our peace, hope, and joy. I wasn't intending on re-preaching Jamin's sermon. So hold on for the new sermon that I'm actually supposed to be preaching. None of that was written down. I don't even know why I do this. Every time I get in the car and Joe says, how do you think it went? I always answer the same way. Why do I even make these notes? I can't even barely read them. I usually start crying about five minutes into every sermon. I'm thankful that you are a group of people that don't mind watching a 30-year-old man cry. Because if not, this room would be empty. Um, but those words mean something. Some of the hardest words in, in, the, in the Bible to live out is the Lord's Prayer. God's will is perfect. It doesn't mean you're going to come out without scars. It's not my will. It's His will. It's His way. And that's reaffirmed every time we read it. Um, if you would, just for the reverence of God's holy word, would you stand up? Um, you can read along with me. We kind of understood that like everyone reads the Lord's Prayer out of ESV, but everyone mem memorizes it out of King James. So you just do what you feel like you need to do. It's going to be behind you. If there's not a Bible next to you, we can get you one. Uh, but read it as you will. So verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray over you. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for teaching us how to pray. Thank you for, for writing the literal words of, of our manner of prayer and our manner of life, that we may, we may read it, we may search it, we may live it, we may apply it. I pray for the next few minutes that we solely focus on you for your will and your ways. Amen. All right, so that time, that was on me. I've written down in my Bible, and I just kind of started reading what I wrote down, which was not Scripture, but it was adherent to the understanding of Scripture. So we're going to land today in verses 11 and 12. So give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Um, that's where um, we're going to focus in on today. And, there, and again, it's some beautiful, beautiful words that are easily understood and, and hard to apply and even harder to live. So verse 11, when it says, Give us this day our daily bread, which means our daily sustenance. Bread here can be translated to anything that's going to keep you alive. Anything that you need, whether it be food, clothing, roof, the air you breathe in some manner, in some way is completely sustained by our sovereign God. And we have to understand that because we live in a world where independence is, is something to strive for and dependence is a, is, a, is a view of weakness, but that's actual counterculture and that's actual counter-gospel. The gospel will tell you the more dependent you are, the weaker you are, the more dependent you are on God, the stronger you actually are, and the more independent you think you are. Are, and the more you think you don't need Christ Jesus as your Savior, the weak and the lost you are. So we have to understand that when God sustains us daily, that is not us as an inability to provide for ourselves, but a trusting in a sovereign God. 
We can relate it back to Exodus 16 when the nation of Israel was wandering around and they literally had no food, so God provided manna. But he also made rules for manna where he said, you can only gather up what you need in one day. If you, if you hoard it up, if you lack trust in God, so instead of just picking out the manna your family needs for today, you're also going to say, hey, I'm going to hedge my bet. I don't know if this manna is going to show up tomorrow, so I'm going to grab today's manna, and I'm actually going to grab tomorrow's manna. The Word of God said, tomorrow's manna would rot before your eyes. Because God was trying to instill in his people, don't worry, i got to watch. Don't worry, um... God was trying to instill in his people, you need me for the air you breathe. You need me for every step you take. The manna I give you is enough for today, and I will not let you store up other manna because it's going to set yourself up for a mindset of dependence. And I need you de not dependent on me, not dependent on, on your ability to pick up bread. Because that bread's going to come. I'm sovereign. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to provide for you in the way in which you can sustain life. But just like a lot of the Old Testament, it's a foreshadowing. It's a beautiful object lesson of dependence on God. And independent, where you're trying to hoard up stuff, would ultimately rot away, which is the truth today. Today, if you feel like you can go out on your own and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, that's just the culture of society lying to you. God doesn't want people to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps because ultimately they can't. Culturally you can. Culturally you can look tough and you can look uh, independent and you can look like you got your stuff together, but ultimately that will rot just like next day's manna. Ultimately, whatever you think you're doing on your own, apart from God, apart from God's will, apart from God's sustenance and sustainment, ultimately will rot just like the bread before the Israelites. And a lot of what we do in our life is proving our, to ourselves that we need no one. We are an independent society. We're a society that says you're only as strong as you can be self-reliant. And I'm as guilty as the next person of saying, I don't want to ask for help because help is weakness. I don't, want to, I don't want to not be self-sustainable because then it looks like I'm a bad provider, I'm a bad father, I'm a bad husband, I'm a bad friend. If I ask you for help, um, it means that I have somehow let you down or let myself down and being able to actually be the person I, I think I need to be. But, but the, the, Lord prayer, the Lord's Prayer guards us from this and says, there's one person that will sustain you. You need God like the air you breathe because you, God is the air you breathe. God is literally the thing that holds this whole universe together. It holds us together. You see a lot in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D, the word Lord, but spelled in all caps. Which, if you see the word in all caps, it's referring to the word Yahweh. Uh, if you see it in lower caps, it's actually just a title of a ruler. So, um, when you see the word Lord and it's Yahweh, it's a direct translation of the Hebrew God. So, when, when, when the Hebrews said that this is our one true God, and we believe in one triune God. We don't believe in many gods, but we believe in one God. That God's earliest name in recorded uh, Hebrew history in the Bible is Yahweh. And, and the older you go back and the longer you look in to the actual definition and the working of his name, it's actually more of a guttural sound that we can't even really make. Um, it's not really a sound or uh, a usage used in a lot of Western society and how our culture, but it's Yahweh. It's, it's the sound of breathing. So the Lord's name, Yahweh's oldest translation of the name of God is literally the sound of us breathing. So that our breathing, the sound, the guttural, airy version of what we sound like is breathing is saying the name of God. So for you to live, every three to four seconds you have to say the name of God. And that is a beautiful depiction of God give us our daily bread. 
Moving on to chapter 6, verse 12, where it says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's easy if you're thinking from a financial stance, but we're not. We're not talking about debt, liquidity. We're not talking about any of that. Debt is translated to sin. God, forgive us our sins so that we may forgive the wrongs that are done to us. Would be a more uh, layman translation where it says our eternal debt to God is sin. That sin, that debt was paid. We are now asking God for a personal restoration. We're saying forgive our sins eternally. Provide for us a Savior that we may be atoned, we may be reconciled, that God may look at me through the lens of Christ. So at me, as a child of God, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. He came to this earth and He lived a perfect life. While He lived a perfect life, He was crucified. He was crucified and buried. On the third day, He rose again, conquering hell and the grave. And now He sits at the right hand of God. That's what sustains me. That's my testimony. That's what I believe my Savior is. And since I believe that, and that is to be true, and I call Him my Savior, I call Him the great high priest. When God looks at me, He doesn't see the disgusting version of Timothy Martin Roundtree as a broken, broken Savior. He looks at me through the blood and the lens of Christ. When He sees me, He sees what His Son did for me. He shows the eternal love that He did. He said, hey, I love you so much, I'll send my Son to be tortured and ripped to shreds for you. That is the beautiful notion of grace. We see this kind of relationship in Matthew 18 where He gives the parable of the debtor. And we see it a lot where we see we understand and we want ourselves to be forgiven, but it's really hard to forgive other people. We want our sins forgiven by God. We want our wrongs forgiven by our friends. But for some reason, what he or she did to me is unforgivable. Christ knows that. He writes a parable about that in Matthew 18, where he depicts the, 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 the debtor, uh, where the, the king of this, uh, uh, of this region is calling in someone that, who owes him a large debt, a very large debt, an unpayable debt. And in that time, in that culture, if you owed that large of a debt and it got called... You were in slavery, and so was your family, and all of your stuff was paid for. And this, and this person, this debtor, came before the king and said, There's no way in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime I'll be able to pay this. I humbly come before your throne and say, Please forgive me once and for all, because I'll never be able to pay it. And the king, in his mercy, says, Yes, I forgive all things. We are square. We are right. And that debtor goes into a person who owes him mere dollars and says, Pay me my money. And that person says, I don't have the money. And the person who was just forgiven by the king is now holding this person in contempt, throws that guy in jail. And it shows the depiction of humanity, how we have been once and all forgiven eternally of our sin, but we, for, we refuse to, to forgive the people in our life who have given us small slights who has rubbed us the wrong way. Or maybe they've done a, a, a gracious wrong, a, a horrible wrong. Maybe they've done something so wrong to you, you can't comprehend even looking them into the eye. But the Bible says in this parable, when Peter asked Christ, how many times do I forgive them? You, you forgive them seven times 70. And that's not even a literal number. It's an example of you forgive them every time they ask and need forgiveness because you have been forgiven once and for all. And we struggle with that. We don't struggle with that um, because we can't understand that. We struggle with that because we don't understand grace. Our, our problem when it comes to forgiveness, our problem when it comes to how do I interact with other sinners, is that we don't understand grace. It's why churches can get messy. Because um, we all put on this facade of the best version of ourselves 
on Sunday morning, and we can fake anyone out on a Sunday morning, but when we start doing life together, the real version of ourselves happen and people get hurt. And that's not necessarily a horrific thing in of itself, that's just life. But the fact that we can't coexist with people who have wronged us once is a misunderstanding of grace. Because we don't understand what's been given to us. Because if we fully understand what God has done for us, then there is no other realistic answer to that grace than to show that kind of grace to the next person. Because we are called to be Christ-like. We are Christians. We belong to a certain way of life. And I'm in no way saying this is going to be easy. I'm not saying, hey, you just got to forgive because you've been forgiven. But that is the biblical context of the scripture. You must forgive because you have been forgiven. You've been forgiven an eternal debt of sin and damnation. And I'm asking you to forgive your counterpart for whatever perceived wrong they did. No matter how large or small that perceived wrong is culturally or, or, or legally or, or inside your family or how, how wrong and betrayed you feel, there is no version of that that can even amount to anything close to how we betrayed God with sin. How we stepped out of the garden in complete brokenness because of our idolatry, our brokenness, and our shame. None of that compares. But we have been forgiven at the sake of Christ's blood on the cross and now we have to live out that forgiveness in common grace. <clears throat> Paul writes it better and denotes the context of grace uh, better than I ever could. If you would turn to Ephesians 2, I'm going to read out loud as you stay seated just for time's sake. <coughs> Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So verses 1 through 3 is pretty much saying, you're as broken as it gets. The best version of yourself is still a broken sinner before a sovereign God. He's saying, you walked in the ways of this world. You walked in the ways of iniquity. You walked in the ways of Satan. But then the two most beautiful words in Scripture, verse 4 says, But God. Repeat that with me. But God. Being rich in His mercy because of the great love in which He loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Say that with me. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated... Uh, <coughs> sorry seated us with Him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus is exactly what I was talking about earlier. When God looks at you, if you are a child of God, when God looks at you, He sees Christ. He seated us in the place in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, He might show His immeasurable riches by His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared us beforehand that we should walk in him. So what Paul is saying here <coughs> is how we understand grace is to really understand the depravity of man. I understand I was a sinner. I understand I needed a Savior. I understand that my sovereign God sent that Savior and showed me grace. I did not deserve salvation. I could not earn salvation. There was a love and grace given to me that I will never be able to fully comprehend. I will never be able to fully understand. But that the, the sustainer of the sovereign world loved me so much, he sent his son to be tortured to death 
and die on the cross. That's the definition of grace. And we are marked by grace. We are marked by the idea that we should walk around and treat people different because of the grace we have been shown, by the forgiveness we have been shown. Because if not, we don't understand it. We are hypocrites that just like going to church. And there's, there's nothing wrong with um, not fully being able to comprehend the grace and sovereignty of God. He is God. You cannot put him in a box. But you can understand that you have done more wrong to God than anyone can ever do to you. And yet still God loves you. Yet still God sustains you. He will never forsake you. And we have to reciprocate that. This world needs Christ. This world needs the followers of Christ to love like Christ. We need this world to see from us unearned grace. And it's really hard. It's really hard in 2019. It's really hard in, in, in American culture <coughs> to, to show this grace. We are a nation divided. We have completely lost the ability to respectfully disagree. We have completely lost the ability for me and you to not to be on the side, same side of a political or a cultural argument and we still love each other. It is lines drawn in the sand. There is um, a polarizing topic after polarizing topic after polarizing topic. And if you don't come on the same, if you don't come down on the same side as me, you're dead to me. You're wrong. You're an idiot. And I'm going to prove you wrong on social media. And that's the opposite of grace. Grace is, I love you, I may not always agree with you, I may not always be happy with how you treat me or others, but I love you with an unconditional love that will not be forsaken because that is the love that has been shown me. Because if you're the, the social media warrior trying to prove everyone right, they don't care about the God you serve. If you're the guy that's constantly judged people, constantly a hypocrite, and has no concept of grace, no one's going to come to church with you because they don't want what you're selling. They sure as heck don't want the life you're living. But a person marked by grace can change the world. We see today you can flip on the news and something can happen that will instill, instill anger in you before it instills sadness. It will instill a passionate debate before a longing to pray. And that's what's wrong with America because Satan has us exactly where he wants us. Satan wants you misunderstanding grace and misapplying grace so nobody actually understands what Christ has to offer. When you see something on the news this week, I pray that if it's sad, it breaks your heart for all parties. We're, a, we're, we're one more police shooting away from another city burning. We're one more activist away for the LGBT community for us to rail against sin. We're, 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 a, we're a powder keg of dissension. We're a powder keg of argument and hate because we don't understand grace. No matter what happens in the next a news cycle in the next shooting, whether it be justified shooting or not, it should break your heart. Romans says that we should rejoice with those who rejoice and we should weep with those who weep and we mean it. The loss of life, whether it be a horrific act on TV or a horrific act on the streets or whether it be the next abortion or whether it be the next proclaiming and, and, and uh, a celebration of sin, it should break our hearts. It shouldn't fill us with anger. It should break our hearts. And if it really breaks your heart, it should bend your knee. 
If you spend more time on social media railing the plagues of this culture versus actually showing grace and love to this culture, getting on your knees and praying that they repent and find Christ, you've misunderstood grace. You've misunderstood our Savior, and you've misunderstood what it means to be a Christian. I know I'm coming at you south right now. Some of you are like, Tim, I'm not even on any Twitter anymore. Yeah, but you, you, follow the, you, you follow the notes. You follow the mansions. And if you don't think this world is depraved, depraved get on Twitter. Get on people that, and, and I'm not saying I'm not saying there's pagans on Twitter that are that are raging against the machine. There are pastors and Christians on social media that are raging at the idea that someone would disagree with them, raging at the idea that someone would interpret their Bible different than them, or would love different than them, or would hate different than them. And you know what? I'm not saying that grace is the toleration of sin. Do not mishear me. We will always draw the line on sin. If it is sin, we will not be about it. But I was raised a certain way that you despise the sin and you love the sinner. Amen. And that is what Christ did. Sorry, I'm not super emotional. I just can't catch my breath for some <clears throat> Christ deplored the sin. He did not make tolerations of it. He did not make concessions for it. He died for it. And that is what we are called to do. I pray this week, no matter what news, I, I, I know this, that whatever uh, day you decide to flip on social media or the news, something's there that should break your heart and bend your knee. And I pray when that thing hits you in the face, you do it. You show grace. You show love. You pray that they would turn from sin. You pray that they would turn to Christ. And you prove that you actually care about them by loving them, not debating them. No one has been turned from their ideologies and their ways by a quick witty remark on social media. But people turn from their sin when the sons and daughters of God get on their knees and pray for their souls. So I pray today that we look at the Lord's Prayer as a blueprint of how to live our life, a blueprint on how to pray for the people in our life. And there's people who God have put on your soul and your mind because they need you desperately and you may be the only person that ever prays for their soul. I want, you to view for your, I want you to view the loss that way. What if I'm the only one that ever prays for their soul? Am I praying enough? Am I doing enough? Am I living the manner in which God has called me to live that's worthy of the gospel of Christ? I pray that we understand grace. And I pray that we understand grace and we, can, we prove that we understand grace by applying that grace. We're going to finish up with another, uh, another song. And I want you to sing it or I want you to pray it, but I want you to believe it. I want the words that we say, the scriptures that we read, and, and the, 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 the theology we proclaim to actually be rooted in ourselves. And how it is rooted, how it is manifested in ourselves is do we actually apply it and live it out. If it's just words, we're just a bunch of people who like getting up early on Sundays. And I pray that's not true. I pray that we're the change that God wants to see in this city. Let me pray over us. We're going to come up and sing. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your sovereign grace. Thank you for salvation that we did not earn. God, I pray that we understand this world owes us nothing, but God gave us everything. I pray that our, we are marked by grace. I pray that we turn the other cheek. I pray we don't repay evil for evil. I pray that we, we draw a line in the sand that we will never tolerate sin. We will hate the sin, but we will love the sinner because we will live our lives in accordance to Christ. God, I pray all these things in your holy name. Amen.